Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. You can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, Overcast, Pandora, Stitcher, GoodPods, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, on TikTok as Let's Talk Micro, and on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. And if you subscribe and you listen to episodes and you like them, go ahead and leave a review. That's always good for the podcast. So subscribe to the podcast, follow me on social media, provide any feedback, any possible podcast topic suggestions. I always like to post pictures of organisms and give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. So definitely go ahead and subscribe. Any feedback, any topic suggestions, you know, they are always welcome and appreciated. And I'm not going to talk a lot today because the episode is long. But if you haven't checked out the previous episode, go ahead and do so. It was with Andrea Prinzi. She's a microbiologist. And we talked about an article about microbes in your food. So we talked about enterococcus and feta cheese. We talked about fusarium and how it plays a role in a popular uh, meat substitute. It was a very fun conversation, very educational. So go ahead and check it out if you haven't already. So today's episode, it was one that was, it was definitely great. I had a great time recording it. It was very good. You know, it was, it was long, but the time just flew by. You know, it was so interesting talking to this person. As I always say, you know, I enjoy connecting with microbiologists, with laboratorians. And this time I also got to connect with definitely uh, an infectious disease doctor, you know, that's involved in this field. But at the same time, a podcaster. Maybe some of you have listened to it already. If not, I definitely recommend it. The podcast is called IDIOTS or Idiots, but it stands for Infectious Disease Insights of Two Specialists. And it is spelled ID colon IOTS. So Infectious Diseases Insights of Two Specialists. But altogether, you know, it, it, it reads idiots. So I had a chance to chat with Callum, which is one of the co-hosts. You know, this is hosted by Callum and Jane. And they are two infectious disease doctors in the United Kingdom. And their goal is, is very similar to mine, to mine, you know, of my podcast, you know, which is, you know, they want to share information, they want to educate. So they definitely, they enjoy doing it. They do their research and they put information out there in a responsible manner, which is what we always, as communicators, we need to do. Unfortunately, due to some unforeseen circumstances, uh, Jane was unable to make it. So I got to chat with Callum. So, Jane, definitely I'm looking forward to talking to you the next time. And they extended an invitation to their podcast. So, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So, let's go ahead and check it out. Like I said, it's a, it's a long episode, but it's worth it. Let's listen to it. So, one of the great outcomes of podcasting, and I have said this before, is that I get to connect with people from this field, you know, fellow educators, fellow microbiologists, fellow medical laboratory scientists. So it has been great. So today is no different. I get to connect with someone that works in this field and at the same time, a fellow podcaster. You might have listened to the podcast before. It is called Ideots, Ideots or Idiots. One of the co-hosts of that podcast, I have Callum. Callum, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Louis. And... Uh... We were we were making a joke there because uh, in the UK we pronounce uh, cephalosporins of a hard K, uh, and I know that over over in the US it's uh, soft C cephalosporins. So uh, I guess um, my name would be Calum uh, uh, here, but it's Ashley Callum. So I, I guess my name is pronounced in the American uh, fashion. Uh, yeah. So it's, sorry. So so it's it's Calum. <laughs> 
No, no, it's Callum. It's Callum, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm confusing you now. Yeah, a little bit. No, yeah, I think that's what, yeah. That's why I, you know, you talk about the cephalosporins and we'll talk about the podcasting a little bit, but that was one of the first things, you know, like I saw the name was the first thing that drew me to it when I saw it. So I started looking at it and then I saw what you did for the podcast. And the first episode that I listened to was actually about the cephalosporins. Huh. So imagine when I started listening, I think I, I, I downloaded it and I was listening to it on a flight. And then when I hear, you know, like a cephapheme, Keftazidine, Keftriaxone. I'm like, wow, like they're pronouncing them like that over there. And I, I, I shared that story with a coworker, and he was like, really? I'm like, wow. So it was just, you know, surprising, like hearing that pronunciation. But um, I definitely, you know, I, I do listen to your podcast, and and we'll talk more about that. But let's go ahead and start with a quick introduction. Okay. Uh, so uh, my name's Callum. I work in Scotland. I'm a a trainee in both medical microbiology and infectious diseases. So the way that the training works here, uh, it's changed slightly in the last 10 years or so. But now we have the medical side over the laboratory, but also we combine that with the clinical side on the wards uh, doing infectious diseases. Uh, so I've been from in training since well, I started medical school in 2007 and qualified in 2013, and I've got two and a bit years more left before I would become a consultant or the sort of attending equivalent. So I guess I'm a resident equivalent or fellow, fellow equivalent, um, trying to get my head around the American system. Uh, at the moment, I'm actually doing a medical education fellowship, although that doesn't have anything to do with podcasting. It has been really useful to learn a bit more about things to do with education and uh, educational theory. Okay, well, definitely, you know, uh, welcome again. Um, as infectious disease doctors, definitely, we, at least here in the US in the, the laboratory, there's not that much interaction. They typically, they more maybe, they will interact more with our medical director or, our, you know, our doctor microbiologist. So we typically, from us working on the bench, a lot of times, you know, what, what we see is the request or maybe on the phone requesting some results on a culture or maybe adding an additional susceptibility. So can you tell the audience, so um, what do you do as an infectious disease doctor? Sure. So I think the roles in, in the UK anyway of the medical microbiologists and infectious diseases doctors are is merging. The, the traditional role has been like a couple of different silos of practice. So I guess imported infections, things like fever and returning traveler, tropical infections, things that are like unusual and outside of the scope of your general physician uh, in like internal medicine. So that's been like a real uh, part. So like, you know, your malaria, your typhoid, these sort of, uh, you know, not, not rare, but not common infections uh, we take on. Uh, and I guess what those infections are depends on the setting. So if London has uh, a whole load of, um, uh, you know, malaria is much more common there than it would be in, in Scotland, for example. So sort of the practice differs. And another like key area, I guess, would be um, care of patients with chronic viral disease. So uh, hepatitis and uh, HIV would be like a, a core area of practice. Um, and that, that's, I guess, been like, you know, pre antiretroviral therapy was a huge amount of work. And now it's more sort of chronic patient care with, with hopefully rarely having patients with more advanced HIV or AIDS. Um, and I guess emerging areas of practice is a lot to do with antimicrobial stewardship and, you know, responsible use of antimicrobials, antibiotic resistance. And, uh, and then outside of those, you know, kind of core areas, uh, we do a lot of work with more unusual, you know, the, the, the really complicated cases. I think that's where, where we lie. Um, and our sort of model for delivery of infectious diseases medicine is in the UK, certainly it's mostly in, uh, what we would call like a tertiary referral center. I don't know if it's the same, but like, you know, the, the, the teaching hospitals attached to the university and there's less presence in our sort of smaller uh, hospitals out and about. Um, and we, we know, have, certainly in our local area, we have 
uh, infectious disease wards. We've got inpatients that we would look after, usually with sort of con- complex, difficult diseases. We run a lot of outpatient clinics. And then the other way we deliver care is we do like consult um, services where we go around other wards and see patients with bacteremias or complex uh, infections. Um, and I guess, you know, fundamentally the difference between the UK and US health systems, you know, because because in the UK, like for these consult services, um, there's not like a fee attached. Like, so each bit of healthcare, you know, it doesn't, nobody's paying for the healthcare. So it's not like we get any benefit from doing that other than obviously benefiting patient care. So there is, there is a lot more pressure on services to be just judicious with our resources about what we do and don't deliver, um, which is a real challenge because I think, you know, it's like 30% of hospital admissions have an infection. So the real challenge with infection, infection medicine is which patients really need input from an infection specialists, because you could just, you could take on a whole lot of work. Um, but do you, do you need to do that? Where, where is it most impactful? Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I see definitely. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work. I mean, from what I've seen here, I mean, I know I work in a large lab and there's definitely always a lot of cases and a lot of consults for them. So they do stay very busy. So one of the things, you know, in microbiology is just like, it's, it's always, it's a field that it's always changing. And especially, you know, when you're working in as a, me as a, as a medical laboratory scientist, which is a biomedical scientist over in the UK, definitely, you know, just the organisms, they're constantly changing. We're always surprised. You know, we always like to say this, you know, this bugs, they just don't go to school. They do whatever they want and you learn something. And then next thing you know, you find a different morphology. You find them maybe in a different and a surprising source. So as an infectious, uh, as, as far as, you know, as an infectious disease doctor, you know, what are the most common organisms that you work with? Uh, I think one and, and probably two is Staphylococcus aureus. That's like a mainstay of our, of our, practice you know patients coming in with complex staphylococcus aureus bacteremias or, or other disease uh, is huge and i think other organisms you know strep pneumo would definitely be up there like you know you're just common um bacterial infections are making up the 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 bulk of of um of disease um gram negatives and i guess it depends on like your local setting and what specialties you have you know what your area of practice is you know, I guess pseudomonas would be another big, big factor in uh, hospital acquired infections. Now we're, we're very fortunate in Scotland and that um, it's a small, you know, area of the UK. There's the population is about 6 million. So, you know, pretty tiny in comparison to lots of areas of the US. And that means that we can have quite unified practice. And we also, um, we don't have huge issues with antimicrobial resistance compared to a lot of areas. So although we do see patients with like carbapenem resistant uh, enterobacterialis um, or multidrug resistant pseudomonas and so on, that's, that's rare still um, compared to a lot of parts of England and, uh, you know, um, where there's a lot more uh, imported disease, there's, there's a lot of problems with multidrug resistance organisms. So we're quite, we're quite lucky here that that's not a huge problem. It's not to say that it's not going to be, but I think part of that is to do with quite robust stewardship um, programs um, and also just to do with population dynamics. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And then, yeah, would, and then typically, yeah, probably, yeah, depending on the, on the population and because sometimes, yeah, I have worked on, on smaller hospitals where the population you don't see that many multi-drug resistant organisms, but then on, on, on the hospital that I worked in a very large and a large city, uh, you see more and it's been increasing over the years. Like I remember when I started, maybe you will get the one case of, of a carbapenem resistant, you know, of, of a KPC. And nowadays, you know, you see more and more. So it's definitely been on the increase. So that was going to be my question and you answer it. So, Oh, yes, sorry. So, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> the, to tie up about the organisms being unusual and we've always been surprised. So now you mentioned the most common ones. So what are some of the most unusual organisms that you have seen in your career? I mean, if you are able to talk about it at all. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, some of the things that we get here are probably not that unusual for people in other parts of the world. Um, 
and I don't often get the or- the opportunity to look at the organism uh, on the plate or directly, um, just because the way that we work cross site and so on. Because um, I mentioned a lot about what the role of an infectious disease doctor is, and essentially, I don't know if it's similar to the US, but the medical microbiology role is is much more lab focused in terms of laboratory management resor- results coming out. Um, occasionally having a bit of input into the lab, but that's becoming less common because it's becoming a more clinical role and doing some of that con- consult role. Um, but a lot of it is taking advice um, calls, so getting referrals by phone or, or going to see them. Um, so yeah, the, the unusual organisms I've been involved with, I guess, you know, it's probably the things that stick in my mind are the, you know, the tropical infections because that's just um, more unusual. So I think quite early on in my training, I was looking after a patient with leishmaniasis. Um, and I think uh, that, that really stuck in my mind. Like it was a cutaneous and there was a, there was an ulcer and the treatment was, was really toxic. And it was, it was quite a like difficult uh, thing to do and the diagnostics was quite unusual. So that was really stuck in my head. Um, and then we've had some other, you know, unusual uh, things going on. So we've had, um, I've not been directly involved, but we did have an outbreak of uh, anthrax uh, in our injecting drug user population. So there was, it was thought to have been contaminated at some point during the transport chain. And it was mainly focused in Glasgow, which is a city in the West of Scotland. And, uh, it was, there was cases elsewhere as well. So that's, um, something that we're very vigilant about because, uh, that's obviously a very dangerous pathogen to have in your, in your lab. Um, a couple of weekends ago, we had, uh, an organism that we thought might be uh, Bacillus anthracis, but uh, thankfully it was it was something else. So uh, <laughs> um, sometimes it's the organisms you don't get. And other other things that stuck in my head are like um, Cranibacteria diphtheriae, so uh, diphtheria, which um, was uh, quite quite mild actually. And again, I wasn't I wasn't like directly involved in that case, but in a small center, you know, you well, it's not that small center, but uh, you know, you know how people you know you hear about unusual organisms and uh go into the lab and see them if they're if they're there to be seen so yeah yeah we do and especially you know as between us like you know uh, uh, biomedical scientists and we definitely if we see something unusual we make sure that you know or we hear that it's like people talk and then we go oh i heard that someone had this so you go to the person and you approach them and typically you know for teaching purposes especially if they're unusual we try you know, as long as it's not dangerous to do so but you know, we try to maybe subculture it and then, you know, show it so people can have that visual and, and, you know, and recognize it. If they ever get it again, then it's a little bit easier for them. Um, but I can. Yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. And in, um, in medical education, there's this term for like high acuity, low. Um, I can't remember what the O stands for. It's called halo. And it's a term for, you know, training about things that when they come up are really important to know about, but the low currents, I think that's it. And they, it, it's really important to train for these unusual organisms because, you know, it's really key that you can identify them when they come up. And that's a big challenge to training is like, what's the balance between safety? You know, you might be the first person to see that and you, you need to be able to pick up what the organism is. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I am. Yeah, I agree. We need to be yeah preparing and and I always, that's what, I, you know, when I, I teach other techs or, you know, it's always definitely first, you know, you start with getting a good grasp on what, what's normal, right? So that way you definitely know if something is off, you know, do, in the back of your mind, it goes, something goes off and, you know, okay, maybe I should bring someone else in on this or, or ask or look for, you know, look at a textbook. But definitely what you said, because you don't know who's the first person that typically, you know, and maybe the incidence of having a, an anthrax or some a sample with the plague, they're very low, but you don't know if you're going to be the one opening that plate and looking at it. So definitely have me to be prepared and educated enough where we, as soon as we see this, you know, we know something is off, we proceed with caution and then either consult with someone, take the proper steps, but don't expose everyone in the lab. So, yeah, it's funny that a lot of the time th- there's a huge amount of skill in reading those plates and, you know, identifying just from a glance, you know, like, oh, that's going to be this or that. And sometimes there's things that don't quite fit into our sort of pattern recognition of what it's going to be. So, you know, you could see a bacillus on the plate and think oh, it's just, a bac-, you know, it's going to be a bacillus or it might be, you know, looks looks like some other gram negative. 
and discount that unless you know the clinical history of the patient, which I don't know how it works in your centers, but here we really struggle to get useful information on the, on the requested lab. So quite often there's no clinical details of the case. So you don't know the patient's an injecting drug user has, has been off traveling um, and had lots of contact with, with animals. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's the same here. Sometimes we definitely, it's, we have to dig a lot and, and trying to find either, you know, like in the patient's chart, just getting there and try to find out, okay. Cause sometimes, you know, especially you get a, let's say you get a swap and all it says is wound or it says abscess and you're like, okay, from where? So typically, you know, first instinct is, do you go to the actual sample and you look at it? Maybe it's written there on the label, but a lot of times it's not there. So then you try to find the patient's history and then it's not documented. You're digging through all the dates and you finally see the data that matches your culture. And they're like, okay, presents with this. And then, because sometimes even calling and asking, you know, especially if it's between shifts or the, the sample was collected before the patient was transferred to that room, it's very, it's, it's very time consuming trying to find that one, especially in my work day where you have definitely easy, you can have over a hundred cultures to get through. So it's just, it's, yeah, it's very time consuming. I'm laughing and smiling, but it's incredibly frustrating. <laughs> And uh, I, why I'm why I'm finding this a bit funny is because is is sometimes you think is this just us is this our local center you know people but I, I imagine this is a universal problem if if there's some part of the world where they manage to get uh, clinicians uh, to put the exact details onto requests that you want I, I want to hear from them because I, how do you get people to do that even with forcing functions like on our uh, electronic system that it's mandatory to fill in some fields, but people just press spacebar or, or just write dot, dot, dot or something to, to, you know, to, to get past that. And I think the, the issue at heart of that is that people don't understand how the tests are processed and they don't understand the significance of the clinical information for like, you know, if the patient has got a sore throat, you know, we might work up the samples of the swab differently if we know that they've got recurrent tonsillitis looking for different organisms or if they've got an abscess, you know. But I think so few people understand how the test is processed and how the impact of the clinical details has for your job. That, and I think I'm not sure how we solve that problem. Um, but I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure if I'm glad or not that it's, it, you have the same problem. Um, I, I would rather you had it sorted actually that's probably that would be that would be good yeah it'll be good to see how we can how we can you know help reduce those issues because they you know they they add up you know especially when you're trying to do the best work and provide the best care because after all like i like to mention you know we do this for the patients and when you spend 30 minutes trying to track down something and so you could do your proper work it's not only is time consuming and it's and it's frustrating so yeah, no, that's so true. Like at the end of the day, it's having an impact because if you don't know the details, you can't do the exact right tests. And then that has an impact on the, on the patient ultimately, if we miss something. And one thing, you know, just to, before I move on to the next question is just that another thing going to all this, there's nothing more frustrating as a medical laboratory scientist or a biomedical scientist that you're trying to call a critical result for like a patient that has been discharged. And you're calling five or six numbers and you cannot get a hold of a doctor. I don't know if you experienced that problem over there, hmm. but it's just, we do, we tend to have that, especially if then once the patient gets discharged, you have to call a different number and then you try that. And sometimes the on-call person doesn't want to take the result. And it's like, well, aren't you on call? The whole purpose of being on call is to answer the call. And, but <laughs> like, yes, so yeah. that's another, but that's, that's a whole separate. Yeah thing but it just it's it can be frustrating when you're trying to document that result and these things you know they have a, a turnaround time that affects the metrics and if you get something critical you're supposed to report it typically you know within an hour some test 30 minutes so if you're trying to call that and spend four or five hours trying to get a hold of the physician yeah it can be frustrating wow yeah i don't know if that's as big an issue just because of the way that care is organized here it's much it's very team-based and and so the result would generally just go to, I don't think I've ever had that issue actually with, with someone not wanting to take the result. 
Um, but I don't know because the way that we work is that most of the kind of urgent results come to the microbiologist and then they would communicate it if it was urgent. There's some, some situations where urgent results are phoned up by the biomedical scientists, usually if it's like the middle of the night um, and it's like a neonatal sample or something like that. Um, there's, a, there's like a whole protocol we've got for it. But I, I do wonder sometimes if, if like, if it's a medic to medic conversation, then you're less likely to, to get um, people refusing to take the call. But I, I, I don't want that to be the case, but I think there's, a, there's an element of that there. Um, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, as far as like, yeah, we're the ones that, that call the results here. But when we do have either having a hard time or sometimes, especially when we have a, like an unusual request or something that we don't typically do, or it's always, we do definitely relay those to the, our microbiologists. And then they do talk doctor to doctor and then to find out, okay, do you want this? And, or maybe give them some other options or, and then they work it out and they relay the information back to us. So that's definitely a big part of our work here. But as far as your routine, like positive blood cultures, you know, positive cerebral spinal fluid, like we are the ones that do the phone call. All right. Okay. Yeah, I think, yeah, that sounds like that's quite different then. Um, maybe, maybe we need to change our model slightly because there is a, quite a shortage in places of microbiologists. So <laughs> I think maybe we'll, we'll move towards your model at some point. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, our microbiologist will be very busy if you had to handle that, that level of phone calls. He would not be able to do anything else. Okay. So I mentioned at the beginning, definitely uh, let's talk about your podcast. You know, definitely it's nice to talk to another podcaster. You're kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing. It's just, you know, slightly different because we do, you know, help our patients, but we do different functions a little bit in the way that we provide that care. So let's talk about your podcast. How did this idea come about? Yeah, so the podcast really came about, uh, Jame and I used to work together before he deserted me. And uh, we, I think we gave a joint teaching session to a group of fellow medical trainees and really enjoyed having a sort of quite a light approach to it. And then when James left, we, I think I talked to him about, you know, whether we should just um, do some more teaching and do some podcasting. And I think that what we were targeting was, is that to, to do uh, infection medicine in the UK, there's a series of exams with, it's like the fellowship, the Royal College of Pathologists. And there's, there's two parts to the exam. There's, um, part one that all the ID doctors and the microbiologists have to do. And it's the second part, which you only have to do if you're working in a lab, if you're a virologist or a microbiologist. And uh, so we sort of focused around, okay, so for people sitting that first exam, which is basically all of infection medicine to, to a, a sort of moderate level, what resources are out there and there's a couple of books and and revision tools but there's not that much so that's where the gap was and we thought well why don't we target that and so we started from there and have sort of gotten into a little bit of a rhythm talking around bacteria mainly and uh trying to link up the lab and the clinical side uh yes yeah, so i think that's that's how it started jane jane might remember it um, slightly differently, but unfortunately, you can't join us today. So, uh, if you're listening, James, sorry if I got anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, as far as you know, podcast definitely does have its, its challenges, and I mentioned mine in some some interviews about you know, it, it can be time consuming. It can be you know getting prepared, some of the logistics. So. Any challenges that you have experienced with podcasting? Uh, what has worked well? What hasn't? Yeah, that's, that's so true. I think that the main challenge has been like sustaining momentum. When we're actually meeting and talking, like you and I are now, like that's the joy of it is the the conversation, you know, the, the creating of the content, and that bit's great. 
I think the bits that are challenging is preparing because we were talking about this before we started recording and you know you you really want to make sure that what you're putting out there is factually correct you don't want to tell people the wrong thing and so the the preparation stage is is quite a lot of work and then the editing as well so the way that we work it and we've kind of come into this this naturally I guess is that I've taken on more of the edit editorial role and James has done the preparation um and I think that the, the challenge is really just finding time to do that and committing to it. Um, and sometimes we've had little bits of gaps when things have been going on outside of the podcast. Uh, otherwise, I think, you know, we'd, we'd quite like to move into having guests on because I think the nice thing about having a guest is that it's much easier to bring someone in to talk about something than have to go off and learn it all yourself and prepare. So that, that can be a nice way to just share information. Like if someone else knows it, and then um, it's much easier to just ask them the question than um, have to go off and, and become an expert in it yourself, which is uh, one, probably not possible, but two, also a lot of work. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, just with as someone that, you know, like I, I host mine, it's just me. And then the whole process, definitely getting prepared and then talking and then just not alone letting you talk about the editing, so it was definitely challenging uh, listening to my voice for 25 to 30 minutes. I'm yes. like, oh, like I, I didn't know that I, oh. I said, um, or I, so it's like I, you know, editing that portion. But definitely the interviews, they tend to be easier because, yeah, like in my case, I do if I, I read the article, so I just write some key questions and then I just send them to the guests and then. So they do most of the talking, you know, they talk about their subject, their article, and then you kind of just build up on it or mention a few notes here and there. Yeah, rather than going for a full 30, 40 minutes, you know, talking by yourself. Yeah, it's just so the interviews are definitely easier, in my opinion. So now that you mentioned the another thing, I think is, yeah, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. I thought you were, I think another thing that's really challenging, and I don't know how you feel about this, is imposter phenomenon. Because it, you're obviously putting yourself out there in a very public way. And, you know, it's, let alone the sound of your own voice, which is a bit disconcerting initially, at least, uh, and being factually correct, but also just saying, in, you know, we're going to do this thing, we're going to share this information, people are going to listen to you, you don't know who's listening to you, you don't know what they're thinking. It's not a conversation. Um, and that can be a bit daunting. Um, I don't know how you, you overcame, overcame that or, or did you have that at all or? Uh, yes, yes, I, I did. And, and I'm, I'm traditionally very shy. So just putting myself up there, that was, that was a big, you know, challenge for me. And, but yes, I do think sometimes, yeah, who's listening to that. And that's what, for me, it's just mainly trying to make sure that I put the information, you know, the correct information. So if someone will, if it will get back to me for any reason, well, this is the resource that I use. So it's not me saying stuff that I have in my head that I have learned. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, you like one of the challenges that goes to the podcast is like maybe you do know the information because you have done it, you've been practicing, but putting it in, a, in, in the proper way and transmitting it to the audience. So you do need to do that research to properly use all the terms, not just what's on your head. So that's, that's for me, that's the main thing. As long as I put the, the correct information and, and I'm very clear. I mean, I'm just, like I said, you know, I am a biomedical scientist with a big passion for this and I love to teach and I love to talk about it and, and that's it. So, but so far it's been, a, yeah. And that comes across. Oh, thank you so, so much. Yeah. That's... It's been a very, very yeah. positive <laughs> feedback so far. I haven't had any, any criticism, so that's good. Yeah, constructive feedback, hopefully. Um, but you, you kind of wonder as well, isn't it? I, you know, I definitely would want if someone listened to an episode and there was something we got wrong, I would want people to email in and say, you know, this was actually this. And then you can correct because at the end of the day, you, you, as you said earlier on, we're doing this to to educate and for the, for the, for the joy of it. And you want to make sure that, that things are right. And I guess that comes into like a, a side benefit of it, isn't it? That because you're having to prep so much and think about it, it has like a not like I found this really helpful for keeping my knowledge up to date, and I've learned so much actually, uh, mainly from James. I'm not sure James learned as much from me, but that's fine because he's he's more senior in his training, so <laughs> that's to be expected. 
I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, we definitely because yeah, because you're sitting there and then you are reading and you have your textbooks or whatever. So it's like, you're definitely reinforcing what you knew and learning more of the time. So you find yourself learning more and, and it definitely helps. And, you know, like I listened to your episode about uh, your senior, but I actually waited before because I released one. So I didn't. That's one thing when I listen to yours, if it's a topic that I haven't covered. I wait till I actually release it that way in any way, there's like no bias in my mind or I'm not referencing to anything. So I just, so I do that. So I, I, I did my research, did my years senior, and then I listened to yours, but getting back to the learning. Yeah. Then I found myself when I was teaching the students, yeah, I just, I felt so comfortable with the material and going through the, you know, the organism, the diseases. So it just, it, this whole process definitely has helped to, you know, I have gained some more, more knowledge and reinforce what I already knew. It's funny, actually, because I was listening to your episode on Eusinia um, when I was walking somewhere the other day. And what what's funny is the flip side to learning a lot is that sometimes someone tells me something that we've mentioned in the podcast. They're like, oh, I listened to this and they talked about that. And I've forgotten it. So, you know, it's not like you, like any other form of learning, like do you actually retain it? So sometimes I think, should I go back and listen to my own podcast? Because <laughs> actually, you know, you can learn all this stuff for, for the prep and then say it and then think, oh, I've forgotten that. So but you need to just use the knowledge, don't you? So, Yeah, I mean, it, definitely, especially if it, maybe it's a topic or, or an organism or something that you're not too familiar with that definitely after, you know, after a while, it's definitely good to go and reinforce that either by listening to yourself or if you're listening to someone that covered the same thing yeah it's definitely helpful to every now and then yeah refresh i mean there are some things like you know, with your staff and strep and, and enter the back to rally so in my line of work those are very common so those always stay fresh in my mind but when you get to other organisms definitely um, going back it's it will be very very helpful so then again uh talking about your podcast so what is it about um, yeah, I guess it's about the title is infectious diseases colon insight of two specialists or idiots. And I guess it's about, you know, here, the way that we're, we're kind of approaching it from a slightly different angle, because I think you could you can look at it from lots of different ways, you could say, let's approach, approach this from like a systems approach and say, let's talk about urinary tract infections, and then go into the organisms. Or you could approach it from the other angle and say, let's look at the organisms and then go into the clinical syndromes. And we've approached it like that because I think, certainly for medical education, most of the focus is on diagnoses and, and diseases and and how you approach it. And there's very little knowledge about organisms. I think people have heard of them, but just can't link them up. They can't make a schema in their head of, of you know, where organisms sit, they, they maybe see them on reports, they don't really understand it. And so that's why we came at it from that angle. You know, when we have um, uh, more, uh, you know, training doctors on the infectious diseases ward, and I talk to them about a topic, I often find that the thing that they want to know about is the organisms. And so I spend a lot of time just going through staphylococci and streptococci, you know, what is coagulase negative staph? And that's where the podcast is sort of taken off from is those conversations that we had on the ward, which was trying to get people to not like a, a deep level of knowledge, because as a medic, you know, there's quite a lot you don't really need to know unless you're working in microbiology, but at least enough to, to feel a bit more comfortable with it when they see it on a report. And also to have a little bit of understanding of like, well, you know, this is the antimicrobial regime we've chosen for this patient with this syndrome. And it could be these organisms. So if say we stop the gram negative cover, then we need to replace that with something else, um, which, you know, is quite complicated, which I guess is why, you know, my job exists is that, you know, managing infections can be really complicated. Um, so uh, trying to just share that knowledge, I guess. Hopefully that answers your question. It did, it did definitely. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it is a lot of information. You know, maybe from anywhere from all the way from the disease, the organism and the lab, there's like, yeah, it's so much information. And that's where, you know, in my opinion, yeah, like a, a podcast, it comes in handy because it's just you put everything 
20, 25 minute format, maybe a little bit longer. And you can, you know, repeat, re-listen to that. You're doing laundry, you're, I don't know about, you know, working out with micro information, but definitely writing on your car, doing some tasks. So you're multitasking, you put that information and I always like to stress this, like not everyone has the time to go and, and read a journal or read an article or grab a textbook, you know, it's, we're busy. People in the lab, you know, we have families and just about getting through the eight hours and then the other job kicks in, which is, you know, pick up the kids, homework. So definitely, but this, you can listen to it, you know, your 20, 25 minutes. And that was the goal of mine as well, just to educate people. And especially as fellow biomedical scientists that, you know, this job requires a level of confidence because it's a lot of information. And the way you get that confidence, you know, it's repetition and knowledge. So that's what I want to, what I found out, what I work the organisms, what I have seen, what works well, what doesn't. So I put it there. And it's just about educating people. And at the same time, you know, from listening to yours, I have, you know, we talked about this before we started recording, but, you know, I, I learned about what happens with the results that we put out. You know, what's the regime? What, you know, how do you treat the patient? So that's always good for us to learn as well as, you know, so we can, it reinforces what we know and, and we have a better understanding of our work. Yeah. I think I, and this is something that we certainly struggle with, um, is that the work that's done in the lab is, is critical and is hugely important and has a massive impact on patient care. Let, you know, whether there's a positive result or negative, you know, that's, that's hugely beneficial, but because it's, it's not a patient facing, patient facing role, you don't get that feedback. And I think one of the things that I find as a, as a sort of clinical, clinically working doctor, like one of the most rewarding part of the job is having that patient in front of you and them saying, thank you. Um, and that, that just makes it all worth it at the end of the day. Like you can have a really bad day, but all you need is that, that small token of appreciation and that's huge. And it's funny because there's so much apparatus behind that interaction that the patient only sees the nurses and the doctors and the health professionals and the cleaners and, you know, the, the other people that are immediately visible to them. And they miss, you know, the radiographers, the biomedical scientists, the um, the admin support, the, the IT support, like all these people that are behind it without whom it couldn't work. And so I feel like I certainly, as a medic, feel some responsibility to take that appreciation and like that joyful part of the patient interaction back. Um, and I don't know, like, if you have ideas about how, how to, to make that, like, I guess it's like making sure that everybody appreciates how important they are to the patient's journey through healthcare and like how much that's appreciated, even if the patient doesn't know or understand what's happening, you know, that, that has to be passed on. I definitely agree. You know, it's, it's, it has been some challenging times, you know, in the lab, especially we don't with, with COVID. So it's definitely, we don't, we don't directly deal with the patients, but it is definitely always nice when we get it or, you know, a physician or on the phone. And then, you know, they say, you well, thank you for that. Or thank you for the, you know, the job you're doing. We don't do it for the praise, but it's definitely, definitely nice. You know, you get that, that recognition, you know, it is very involved work. And when we get that instead of, because a lot of times, and maybe it might be due to the lack of understanding, which is also one big thing that hopefully not only with my podcast, but maybe others out there and that Everyone can have a better understanding, just like we as biomedical scientists, you know, with podcasts like yours, understand more about what happens, you know, with the patients. The other way around, see that, you know, everyone understands how the lab works, because sometimes, you know, we do get those phone calls, like, where are my cultures, or where, why hasn't this been done, or it's a time-consuming process. And sometimes, especially with the training, if you put a request for something at, at a certain time of the day, then no one is trained for that. It's not going to get until the next day. And then, you know, the organisms take time to grow. So it's just, you know, microbiology is all about time. So you have to plan ahead when you're working. And sometimes we know, especially with the doctors, and we know who's going to request something. So we kind of start thinking ahead. But, but yeah, we use, it, it's good for everyone to understand how 
the how the process in the lab works and it's just very time consuming and what we do and that way you know everyone can have a little more patience and understand i mean we work as fast as we can of course you know keeping in mind the importance of putting those results out there you know as soon as we can but we have to do it in a in a responsible manner it's it's so it's almost seems so obvious doesn't it that that giving people positive feedback will help them feel motivated and yet we work in healthcare in a setting where essentially the expectations are so high and it's so important that if you do a great job and you get that sample out within the turnaround time and there's no errors and everything goes to plan you know nobody's going to come back and say oh like great job on that wound swab you know you picked up that strife aureus but they will come back and say like oh the sample came back a day late or you and we're constantly dealing with like quality management in the lab and you know when things go wrong and that sort of thing and that can be quite I think hard to process because you know you're constantly looking at the things where things go wrong and we don't spend much time on thinking these are all the things that we're doing really well and celebrating those or as you say like it's that small thing isn't it it's just that you know someone actually saying oh thanks for that result like you know and that that sort of civility piece around um you know making people feel valued and uh, or rather rather making them feel valued which sounds a bit um <laughs> superficial understanding that they are valued because they obviously are and uh yeah that's um i think that's quite hard when when you're you're removed a little bit and so i guess that would be my if any clinicians are, are listening then i think that you have a sort of duty to do that to 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 all groups who maybe don't get the benefit of being patient facing there's definitely downsides to being patient patient facing sometimes um but there's a lot of a little of upsides as well so uh passing on that that thanks um or if any patients are listening send your lab a, a thank you note because i think they would really appreciate it yes definitely definitely um and just to me yeah, to talk about just real quick something that i meant i talked about understanding of how the lab works and uh you know, it's always beneficial to like, sometimes, you know, it happens. I don't know how it works with the, in the UK, but sometimes, you know, we get requests for extending the cultures for an X amount of days. And for some reason, if we hold the account, I mean, I guess it's because they see that it's been finalized in the system, but understanding that if you finalize it and then if it's negative and then you discard your plates and then you get that request, you have to go and retrieve the sample and then go ahead and replate it. And at that point in time, you start thinking, okay, you know, it's been five days since we discarded the plates and then the sample's been in the fridge. You know, it's a negative, like it's a no growth because it's a truly a no growth or is it because the sample is not stable anymore? And, you know, a lot of these preservatives for the swabs, you know, they have a, and they tell you, you know, after an X amount of days, the stability starts going down by like 50% and it just decreases. So that's something to be good about. Definitely good to understand how the whole process worked, you know, on both sides. Yeah, I think that's that's a good like example of something where there you need to have a level of understanding. And if, you know, obviously there are organisms which can be fastidious and slow growing, in which case you need to extend out the cultures. And the ideal way that that would work is that when you're taking the patient samples uh, and you put on the request details, the, clinic, the clinical details, then you know your standard operating procedure will be such that if the differential includes like you know i guess typhoid might be an example in blood cultures you know you might want to extend the cultures a bit further um but also i think people need to have a bit of trust in the in the lab process and say like actually you know with culture techniques now you know with blood cultures for example they're, they're really sensitive and they will pick up things and rarely is extending cultures going to be that useful um, and then that's probably been thought about in terms of how long the cultures are kept for. So maybe it's going back to the people who are asking for those things and saying, what is it that you're looking for with the extended cultures? Are you just wanting to be extra sure, like of just a general, you know, you want the cultures to be longer because you perceive that to be better, in which case it's saying, well, actually, that's probably no better. And the things that are growing later on are more likely to be contaminants anyway. 
which is just causing extra work, waste of resources and, and uh, uh, you know, wasting your time? Or is there a specific thing that you're worried about with the extended cultures, in which case, you know, looking at that and, you know, I think there's some studies now that saying stuff like typhoid, you don't really need extended culture because actually with blood culture systems, it grows pretty quick. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's that's the understanding piece, isn't it? Like if people are asking for unusual things that fall outside of what we normally do in the lab, it's going back to them and saying, why are you wanting that? And maybe they have a point, like maybe they know something we don't, but um, I imagine most of the time if they're asking something odd, it's because they don't really understand why it is the way it is or what is being done. Yes, yeah, I do. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, it's just not generalizing for any reason. I mean, definitely, again, like I said, some physicians, they request some cultures and they're already on point because they, they're strongly suspecting something or they know and, and and they're definitely, and they they end up being correct. You know, what they were suspecting is what shows up on the culture. You know, it's just, it's always, that's very amazing for me. And, you know, especially when they're, yeah, they're suspecting something and it comes out, but yeah, it's just a lot about learning, you know, how everything works. But having said that, you know, definitely all of you, if any physicians out there and you're listening and any other healthcare workers for that matter, you know, definitely thank you for the work that you have done. It's just, you know, it hasn't, it has been definitely 2020, 2021. There were some rough years, but we all pushed through and then, at the end, you know, we work for our patients. So thank you, everyone. Well, I'm just going to throw that thank you right back at you because, uh, you know, obviously COVID was a huge pressure on laboratory resources and, and managing new levels of samples. And, um, you know, I think patient facing roles, as we said, we'll, we'll get that thanks in the patients, but often the lab team, um, miss out on that. So. Yeah, I, I actually, and I, I mentioned this on another podcast that I was talking and, and I actually, I switched jobs like in, in February of 2020. So I found myself in a COVID protocol in a brand new place that I had no idea how things work. And that was very rough because it's something, you know, you've been in a hospital for nine, 10 years, so you know how it works. So you're comfortable, you know, the people, you know, the process. So when you go into crisis mode, you know, it's, it's still difficult, of course, but at the very least, you know, it's like, it's like a family. So you know them and you get through it together. So that was a, an intense feeling of finding myself in a different place with all that stuff going on. I mean, ultimately I came back to my family and I'm very happy. So I'll stay where I'm at. <laughs> Great. Okay. So as far as your podcast, you know, any, you know, we see out there that either, you know, we put our stuff on social media or episodes. So. Uh, what are your expectations for your podcast? Yeah, I guess um, it'd be good, good to hear James thought on this, but I think we've spoken about it and our expectation is to be sustainable more than anything else. It is a lot of work and you you can sometimes feel that imposter phenomenon about like, oh, well, you know, we could do this and this would be better. And like, you know, there's, there's, there's asks from people about stuff. And I think we're probably just about a, as much as we can manage, which is, putting out an episode about every two weeks. And I guess our expectation would be, we'd hope to continue putting out an episode about every two weeks and just work our way through all of infectious diseases, which is no small task. Uh, and just keep working through bacteria, talk about some viruses, talk about some fungi, talk about some parasites. I think there's unlimited number of episodes that could be made. So we'll just keep doing it as long as we're enjoying it and people are enjoying listening to it. Yeah, there's definitely enough material and and, and I definitely I, I feel what you're saying about yeah, keeping it sustainable. I I publish weekly and it's it's intense. Yeah, I it, it requires you yeah, stay at a level of organization or thinking ahead or especially you know, okay, I'm thinking maybe two or three weeks ahead, okay, I have enough material here, or maybe I should start writing an episode, or if not, do I have a guest coming over and that those they help out to keep the continuity, but yeah, it's definitely keeping it going. But of course, sometimes, you know, I just like, we don't do this just like you have a, a, a job outside of podcasting, you know, so do I. So it's just, it's just finding the time. And sometimes, you know, there are life matters. And, and so I do publish weekly, but like during the holidays, I do take a break and then during the summer as well. And, and if anything is getting too complicated, 
like maybe I have a deadline at work or I have something to do with my students or I do tell the audience, you know, this week there's not a new episode. I mean, I, I try to avoid that as much as I can, but sometimes, you know, it, it will happen, but you know, just, you know, life happens. Yeah. We don't, we don't explain our absences. We just sort of drop off, uh, drop off the podcast radio, but I think we're probably, because there's two of us, it's like, it's maybe slightly more difficult to schedule because you can just schedule yourself whenever, whenever you want, I guess. Um, whereas we've got to, um, fight through other commitments and so on. Um, so yeah, sorry that we just disappear sometimes, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to be sustainable and try to keep keep going as, as long as people want to listen, I guess. Okay, so yeah, so if you're publishing, like just that we don't get that that week, yeah, I, I do try. I don't know, it's just like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they people are constantly listening. I mean, I do get a, a fair amount of listeners, I will say, but I don't know if they if they keep track of what I'm saying, no new episode or no new episode. It's just something for me that it feels like since I'm putting content every week and that's the way it's been established, if there's going to be a deviation for that, then maybe. Well, that's, that's very good. I'm, 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 I, I think that's uh, admirable. And maybe we should aspire to be that, um, uh, <laughs> thoughtful for the listeners. But I think we're just, uh, uh, we'll, we'll do what we can do and that's all we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So any, what are the next steps for your podcast? Uh, and, uh, any future, any future plans? Yeah, I think next steps, we've not actually had any guests on yet. And so we'll be uh, bringing some guests on uh, soon, which is really exciting. And we were thinking about how to share our resources because we do like prep and make some notes. Uh, So we've started sharing those, but I think it'd be great if we had a slightly better way of sharing those rather than just a shared folder um, with some notes. But I guess, you know, we're, we're constantly weighing up what would be, what would be excellent for the podcast and what is sustainable and possible for us to do alongside lots of other things. And so the main future plan is just to try and work through uh, things that find people find difficult and uh, give people a resource, hopefully a sort of digital textbook in a way that they can go back to when they're studying for exams or just generally interested that they can listen to um, and doing do more of this sort of stuff as well. I like more collaborating and meeting new people, as you said at the beginning, is one of the real joys of, of doing this. Um, people getting in touch and uh, giving giving feedback. Yeah, you know, definitely. That's it's been so great. You know, normally without this, I mean, especially like I don't think I would have been in touch with so many people from some different places unless I go to a conference or something. So yeah, it's definitely been a, a great journey and continues to be so, you know, learning, meeting people. So I, I do enjoy doing this. Um, so definitely, you know, it's uh, Callum, it's been, it's been great having you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come to uh, Let's Talk Micro. Thanks very much for having me. And we'll need to be having you on uh, Idiots soon. Yeah, definitely. That will I would like that very much. So thank you for the the invitation. And so where can they find, where can listeners find your podcast? I know that on your podcast, you tell people the the exact um, places to find it. I'm not sure. So have a look. It might be on the podcast player of your choice. I think it's on most of the main podcast players. Okay. Well, it's it's definitely on Apple Podcasts. That's where I found you. So... Definitely Apple Podcasts. You know, you search it. Even if you if you type "idiots," it will it will pop in. And I actually I wasn't I found it there, but it was because I found you on Twitter first. I think someone either retweeted something at the time, and then I saw the name, and I decided to look you up on on Apple Podcasts, which is the one that I normally use. They have no affiliation to this podcast. I just it's on my phone, and it's the one that I use the most. But yeah, definitely. On Apple Podcasts, yeah. Yeah, if you go Twitter, we've got uh, idiots underscore pod, which took me a surprisingly long time to memorize, even though it's very simple. And on our bio, there's a link to the um, the the website that the they're hosted from. Is uh, you can basically link to any any player from there. So that's probably the best way to find it. Okay, definitely. And I'll go ahead and on 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 my show notes, I will put some links that way the audience can 
can find you if they want to listen to your podcast, which I do recommend. So go ahead if you want to, especially if you're looking to learn more, a little bit about, you know, the, the antibiotics and, and what they treat patients with and what's used and what's not. It's definitely some great information. And, and uh, those of you that are biomedical scientists out there and you're you know, looking to build up a little bit more of your knowledge, that's a, definitely a great place to start. So I recommend it. Thanks. All right, well, uh, thank you so much. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy listening and learning about the Idiots podcast with Callum. I definitely enjoy my conversation. You know, it is always great learning, you know, knowing more about how, what happens with the results that as biomedical scientists, as medical laboratory scientists, what happens with those results? You know, how are they applied to the care of the patient? Definitely. I enjoy talking to a fellow podcaster that has the same objective as I do, which is, you know, educating, providing information, you know, ultimately, this makes us so much better at our jobs. So definitely check their podcast. I will put the link to it on the show notes. As always, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. So as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.